Great to see everybody here this morning. Uh, if you are just joining us, we're doing a book, a uh, study this, short study this May in the book of Jonah. It's one of the few places that we can read vomit in the Bible. I think that's pretty cool. Um, we are picking up the story. We're a couple weeks into this. We've read through chapter one. And just to catch you up on the story, Jonah is an Old Testament prophet uh, who receives a call from God. And it's an unusual call. He is called as a prophet to go and preach against the city, go to the city and preach against the enemies of Israel. Many other prophets had calls to go preach, to preach against some other countries to say, God's bringing downfall and destruction. But only Jonah is called to go there. And he's called to go to a city called Nineveh, which is modern day Iraq. Uh, And Jonah is told, go east. Go east and go preach there. Jonah says, no thank you. He turns around, he, he runs west. He goes to the Mediterranean Sea out of Israel. He buys a one-way ticket to, at that time, the other side of the world, to Spain. He gets on a boat, not a real wise idea at this point. He gets on a boat and he travels through the Mediterranean Sea. And as we saw last week, there is a storm that appears on the sea. Jonah is in the middle of the storm of his life. He's asleep in a boat when... Um, the storm blows up and it begins to tear the boat apart. And the sailors come and grab Jonah and wake him up and say, we're going to die. You know, come cry out to your God with us. We're all going to die. Every, the storm gets worse and worse. And finally, when they can do nothing left, they draw straws. And the, Jonah gets the short straw and the sailors look at him and said, what did you do? You must be the guy. And Jonah says, yeah, it's me. I've been running from God And the only way we're going to make it out of here alive is if you pick me up and throw me in the water. And the sailors are horrified by this. They're like, we do not want this man's blood on our hands. And so they try rowing. The storm only goes from hurricane to super hurricane at that point. And these guys finally say, God, we don't want to have blood on our hands, but we're going to do what you say. Throw them in the water. And suddenly two things happen. The storm stops. And Jonah sinks. And Jonah sinks down to where he is swallowed by a fish. Yes, it is that story in the Bible. So, um, today we're picking up this story inside the fish. And I want you to think with me about this 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 morning. You may not believe this story happened. I do. Uh, I've done a lot of, like, reading and research on this. But, you know, we have to kind of dispel some pictures from your minds. So, what we're reading today, Jonah chapter 2, is Jonah's diary. It's, It's... His chronicle of what happened to him when he was inside the fish. This is not like, some of you have seen Pinocchio and Geppetto's in the whale and he's got the little desk and the little lamp. He's not, Jonah's not writing down inside the the fish like his thoughts on a little desk with a little lamp. He is chronicling what happened to him while he was there. This is a memory thing, what happened before. And as, you know, when we pick this up... I can tell you, I cannot imagine a worse experience than this. I mean, this pushes all of my claustrophobia buttons, right? All of my fear of drowning issues, all of my fear of drowning in goo issues, right? Like many of you have those kind of issues like I do. You know, and as I was researching this, it was really fascinating to me to find that there are a number of modern-day chronicled historic modern-day Jonah stories of men who were swallowed by a fish, fishermen who were swallowed by a fish and lived to tell the tale. So I'm going to share one of those with you this morning. In 1891, 
The fishing vessel, Star of the East, was down off the Falkland Islands. And as they were out fishing, they were, they were looking for whales. Uh, they spotted a sperm whale, and they sent two boats out after it. The first boat, they never heard from again. One boat capsized by the whale's tail, and one of the men drowned. The other guy, they never found his body. So they har- successfully, they'll harpoon this whale. They bring it on board the ship, and the next day, they cut out the, fish, the, the, the whale's stomach. Okay, this is really getting gross at this point. They cut out the whale's stomach, and they realize there's something alive in the stomach. They cut open the stomach, and Bartley, the guy's name, on the whale boat, one of the fishermen who had been in the the boat that had been capsized by the whales, uh, he is alive inside there. And they pull him out, and he had been, he described later on that he had remembered being, going through this dark passageway, and realize, and then coming to like a wider opening where he's surrounded by goo, and he's able to breathe, but it's so hot inside there that he passes out. And this man, after they pull him out, was stark raving mad for about two weeks, and then he's like, okay, and he starts to tell the story, and he says, you know, I realized what was happening. I realized I was being swallowed alive by this fish. And when they pull this guy out, his, his skin is completely blanched. I mean, he is completely white, and he had been a hairy guy before, he is completely hairless at this point. Gross, awesome story. I can't think of something, I mean, yes, I know the junior high boys that are in this room that all are in my family, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we, you know, honestly, this is interesting to that crowd, some of you are, I'm pressing all your ooh factor buttons at this, right? Um, I can't think of anything worse. I mean, honestly, about the grossest thing that could possibly happen to you. And so... You read this passage from Jonah 2, and it sort of sounds like Jonah describing what happened, right? He says, um, you hurled me into the deep, the currents swirled around me, the the waves crashed over me, Um, he's he's sinking down, the engulfing waters, verse 5, threatened me, seaweed gets wrapped around his head to the roots of the mountains, he's drowning, right? And then suddenly, you brought my wife up from the pit, he's swallowed by a fish. And this is the story of Jonah, right? You know, as we look at this, I want to tell you this is one of the most controversial passages in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of scholars who read Jonah chapter 2, and even if they're okay with Jonah chapter 1, a guy gets swallowed by a fish, they're like, this, this passage we read today, Jonah 1's not nuts, this is nuts. Because if you look at this passage, Jonah doesn't, this is not a prayer for escape. Look at verse 9. What does it say? This is a prayer of thanksgiving. And, you know, I read one, one uh, several critics, but one biblical critic was like, how can this be? A man is swallowed by a fish. You would expect him to pray the prayer, God, get me out of here. God, deliver me from this fish. And Jonas is praying a prayer of thanksgiving. And see, that's the point. That's actually the point of the passage we're looking at this morning. Is that it's not a prayer for deliverance. It's a prayer because of deliverance. If Jonah stand up beside me this morning, all ooey and weird and, you know, hairless, you know, he he would stand up and tell you, as we read in this passage, that the story of his deliverance was not deliverance from a fish. It was a story of something much he was delivered from something much worse 
than the inside of a fish's belly. He's delivered for something much worse than the inside of a fish's belly. Now, what could be possibly worse than that? What could possibly be worse than this? Listen to Jonah's testimony. Jonah's testimony is this. You are your worst problem. You think that your problems are your worst problems, right? I mean, that's the way that we all think. My problems are my worst problems. Genesis, oh no. You are your worst problem. So, you know, we sit around all the time. This week for me, for many of you, you know, man, I'd really like to have... This house is my problem. This car is my problem. A few extra pounds. Wish I had a boyfriend. Wish I, you know, I have a difficult husband. I have a difficult wife. I have difficult kids. I have a difficult job. I hate my boss. I wish I could get a job. You know, this body, these clothes, this life, this city. We are constantly saying, this problem, my problems are my biggest problems. And Jonah says, oh no. You are your biggest problem. You are your biggest problem. You know, famously, in the 1900s, uh, the, the Times of London, major London newspaper, had a, had a con- basically a, a um, writing... Um, I am very inarticulate this morning. They, they asked several uh, well-known authors to respond to this question in the form of an essay. And the question was, what is wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today? And they asked a wide variety of authors from all kinds of... Uh, strata of society, all kinds of different fields to respond to this. And one writer, the British humorist G.K. Chesterton, writes in response to this, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. Now, Chesterton was not being clever, and he wasn't being cute. In fact, what he was doing was rightly summarizing a major piece of Christian theology, which is that I am the problem with the world today. That you are the problem with the world today. He was defining the Christian doctrine of sin. Now, I know when we talk about sin, a lot of modern people have, an, have objections to talking about sin. We, look, you know, we've, we've, uh, we live in a world where sin, sinner, you know, um, blasphemy, pagan, all those words are loaded terms. And they've been used in the past to exclude people to objectify people, to hurt people. And what's fascinating about the book of Jonah is that it is not a book about a fish. It's a book about sin. And the book of Jonah defines sin in such a unique way that you and I, we can't use it to oppress other people. You know, you'll never, you don't see in this passage, you don't see in the book of Jonah the word sin ever used. And yet it's a case study. It's a brilliant case study. And the life of one man, and, and as he wrestles with sin. Now look, some of you may be like, you know, look, I know about sin. I've been to church for forever. I believe in sin. And here's the problem. So did Jonah. Jonah's a prophet. He's, he's like me. He's a preacher. He's a guy who is a religious professional. Jonah could have given you all the right definitions for sin. And yet... You look at this man's life, and his life erupts. His life is caught up in patterns that seem to overwhelm him. You, he looks like an idiot over and over in this book. He looks like a bigot. He looks like a person who is the last kind of person that you want to be around. Jonah knew lots about sin, and yet, like many of us, 
who could give good Sunday school definitions. Some of you could give great words about this. Yet, it's hard to diagnose this in your own life. It's hard to see your own life and the ways that sin, when it kind of catches you off guard and erupts in your life, and you're like, where did that one come from? I don't know why I'm having all these problems. I don't know why I'm struggling so much. This is where Jonah is, and this is where we are. This is a book for people like us. This is a book for people like us. You know, here's how the book of Jonah redefines sin. Running away. Running away. Running away from God. Sin is running from God. See, here's trying to create a life apart from God. Here's Jonah's call. God says, here, I'm going to give you a mission. Go and preach for me. And Jonah says, oh no, I got a better mission for my life. How about I run away from you? That would be a better idea. Create a a life apart from God. See, you may dismiss, you may be able to say, I don't really understand how this book relates to me. This is a story about an Old Testament prophet. This is a story about a religious professional, I thought you said. So I'm not a religious professional. I'm definitely not an Old Testament prophet. Why, Why are we talking about this? And see... We read at the beginning of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, these words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And Jonah has a choice in that moment. It's a classic call of a prophet in the Old Testament. And Jonah has a choice. He says, look, am I going to live my life according to God's directives? Am I going to live a life according to God's word? Am I going to allow God to define my identity and my purpose? Or not? And Jonah says... I choose not. He says, I choose not. I'm not going to get my identity from you. I am not going to live my life according to your definition of who I am and what I'm about. See, that's not just something for prophets. That's an everyday, every person, universal question. Are you going to define who you are, your sense of self, your definition of Who you are, what makes you you, according to God, or apart from God? Are you going to create an identity for yourself that's based on what God says about who you are and what you're here for, or apart from that? That's a choice. That's a choice for each of us. So last night, I had one of, uh, you know, many of you guys can relate to this, a great, like, bro time, you know, hanging out. Drinking some good beverages, watching a movie with a friend. And so we watched Bridget Jones' Diary, like many guys together, right? Me and a- another guy here, his initials are Nathan Cottrell. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was great. I mean, you know, what is defined as maybe the chick flick of the, the last 10 years, okay? Um, and I think it's a fascinating movie, right? I think it's a fascinating movie. I know, I know. You can question my masculinity, but I got six sons, so you can't. Um, <laughs> Right, it was, this movie was lauded and applauded for capturing the essence of what it means to be a modern person. Right, here's Bridget Jones, who is a young woman, uh, she's, she's in her early 30s, she's wrestling with singleness, she's wrestling with who am I and why am I here, and she's got, like every one of you, thousands of options for the way she could define her life. And you see her doing things. So, you know, Bridget Jones is a modern person, and the things that she does in her life, with her body, with her time, she doesn't feel guilty about. Her grandmother 
might have thought about those things and never done them. Her mom might have done them and felt guilty about them. Bridget's like, I'm a free person. I'm a free person. I can do whatever I want. I shape my own self. I make my own identity. And you see this, not only in the movie, but particularly in the book, in the form of her New Year's, these resolutions. And she keeps having these resolutions. And they're things like this. Resolved to lose 20 pounds, obviously. You know, resolved to put, put uh, books by, you know, difficult literary authors on my shelves so people think I'm very intelligent. Right? She has things like this. She says, you know, not go out every night, but stay home and, and listen to classical music and improve myself. You know, develop inner poise and sense of self as a woman without a boyfriend, since this is the best way to obtain a boyfriend. And then she says this, and I think this is most remarkable for us. Be, assure, be an assured, receptive woman of substance, knowing that my sense of self comes from other, not from other people, but from, from myself? My sense of self should come from myself? Wait, that can't be right. Do you hear that question that she's asking? Where does my definition of self come from? That's a thoroughly modern and it's a thoroughly ancient question. Jonah is saying, I'm going to create an identity apart from what you say about who I am, God. Bridget Jones is saying, I'm doing the same thing. I'm struggling to create a sense of who I am, a sense of self. I'm struggling to define myself. This is what the book of Jonah does for us. It redefines the definition of sin. Many of you have a definition of sin which is like this, breaking the rules. Don't do bad things. God is mad at you, shame, shame, if you do bad things. And there's, that's a true but very unhelpful and, and honestly not as true as true could be definition of what sin is. Sin is creating an existence a reality, a sense of who you are apart from who God is. See, we see this in Jonah, and what Jonah discovers is this. You never run away from God without running at the same time to something else. You never just, nobody wakes up in the morning saying, today is a great day to run away from God. What, a, what would you like to do this afternoon? I think I'm going to run away from God. Nobody does that. We run away from God, as, as we read here, by running to other things. This is why, did you see this in verse 9? This is why Jonah says something unique here. He says, look, we have a special word for running away from God by running to other things. Verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols. Idols. Now, what's ironic about this is that Jonah has been called by God to go to a foreign city, to the city of Nineveh, modern-day Iraq, and to preach against people who worshipped idols. The, the city of, of Nineveh was known for its idolatry. They had statues everywhere. People made sacrifices. They laid little flowers. They laid food down. They, idolatry was trying to get the gods to do whatever they wanted them to do. So I can get God in my favor by doing this. And Jonah, these people, have been offensive to Jonah. Jonah's like... And we'll see next week as we look at these passages. Jonah does not care about these people. He does not want them to necessarily turn to God. He doesn't really care about them. He's like, they're idolaters. They run from God by running to other things. And what do we see Jonah have to say in this passage? 
He says, wait. That's me. That's also me. Verse 9. I mean, verse 8. He says, I have been doing this. I have been running away from God by running to something else. What kind of things do we run to apart from God? You know, it's not bad things most of the time. Most of us aren't, you know, running to robbery, theft, and murder is the way we run away from God. We run to good things. And we use good gifts as ways of defining our existence apart from God. Let me give you an example from Jonah's life. This may not be immediately evident to you. The story of Jonah, we read about in 2 Kings as well. And in 2 Kings 14, it tells us that the king, Jeroboam II, was a very popular king. He had expanded the territory of Israel. And he had gone back, and there had been towns that had been lost in battles that he was able to reclaim. And it says this, all at the word of Jonah the prophet. Jonah was a political insider. He was tight he was BFFs with the king. And this man was, had enjoyed a great deal of political and professional success. And you can imagine when God comes to this man and says, here's what I want you to do. Go to your enemies and go preach against them. This is political, this is professional suicide for Jonah's career. He's developed a great, great profession. He has developed a lot of popularity with people. And he knows that if he goes to this place and he preaches, as we're going to see next week, and these people, these foreigners, actually turn and repent, his career is down the tubes. And Jonah runs. See, just like Jonah, some of you may say, yeah, professional success is incredibly important to me. Finding my sense of self by what I do, sure. I mean, that's, yeah, you know, if you ask someone in America, what it, who are you? They tell you what they do. We look to professional success all the time to develop a sense of self. That, among so many other things, our art, our relationships, you know, our music, escapes, pleasure. We, we, you can define a million different things that we use. If, that, that if I looked at your life and said, hey, what is most important to you? What if I pulled away today? If you had some debilitating illness, if you lost some abilities, if you lost money, that this would be, it's over for me. The end. I don't know what else to keep, I don't know how to keep going. Those are things that we look to as idols. We run to, to define self. See, let me be clear. This is not just a non-Christian thing. This isn't for those bad people who are outside the church this morning. Ooh, bad people who are out there worshiping other things. No, this is Jonah. You know, Jonah is one of us. He's a good guy. He's one of God's prophets. And yet, this man is caught up in idolatry in such a way that he says, I'm, I'm just like him. I'm just like the people of Nineveh. See, Jonah also shows us how idols work in our lives. Do you see what he says about them in verse 8? He says, what do we do to them? We cling to them. It's a perfect word for this. We cling to these things. You know, our, we have white-knuckled grasp on the things in our lives that we think, this is going to make me 
This is going to make me an acceptable person. This is going to make me a good person. This is going to fulfill me. I will know that you know, I've, I've achieved something. I know I will, I've arrived when I have the acceptance from these people. When I have a boyfriend. When I have a job. When I have a, a, this master's degree behind my name. When I have all this stuff pulled together. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a, uh, was a pastor here in Philadelphia many, many years ago at 10th Presbyterian. And he describes meeting a woman after a service one night. And he has this conversation with her. And she's a Christian. And she says, look, you know, I'm, I'm all into the Christianity stuff. But, you know, I'm going to really, I will come and I'll make that my number one priority. I will make it a big deal after I have really got this, my professional career going. After I've been able to really make it. She wanted to be famous. She wanted to pursue a stage career in New York. And Barnhouse has this conversation with her. And he pulls out his car keys. And he he walks over. He says, look, come here. Let's go over. And there's a metal post office box there. And he goes and he he takes his key and he scratches the top of the post office box. Leaves a little mark in it. And he says, look. God has designed you that he would be the center of your life. And you can pursue those things, but you will just, I I can promise you, if God is not the center of stuff, you're just going to scratch the surface. You may achieve some notable success. You may achieve some measure of popularity, fame, but you're not going to ever find it. Because God is too much committed to loving you to allow you to have that as opposed to him. So a couple of years passed by, and he describes meeting up with the same woman, and she, she, is, she comes to him, and she, has, she says, you know, that day, that image of you scratching that post office box has haunted me. Because I have achieved a modicum of success, got my picture on one magazine, my name's been in a couple papers, but you were right. I pursued and pursued and pursued and God hasn't allowed me to have what I most wanted. You know, we cling. We cling to these things. We're like, we think this will give me life. I think this will make this work for me. I think that these relationships, I think this career, I think this stuff is going to make my life work out. We cling to it. We grasp at it. And then what does he say about it? It says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What does that mean? This is not complex, people. It means two things. One is that when you cling to an idol, when you cling to something else in your life that you're saying, this is going to make it for me, then watch out because there's no grace that comes with idolatry. Idolatry is always about performance. Your idols, the things that you chase, the things that you say... This will give me life are things that will always be outside of your grasp and require you to sweat. They require you to dance. They require you to bleed. They require you to chase them. There is no grace in idolatry. Your idols will never turn around and say, here, have it. It's all going to be good. Your idols require you to drive after them. There is no grace. You forfeit grace in your life. You are on a treadmill. You are running as fast as you can. And some of you are exhausted right now. But the other thing it means is this, is those who, forfeit, who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. This is what it means. When you run from God, 
You run from God. Thanks, Captain Obvious. I know. Thanks, Jeff. That was the greatest insight this morning. When you run from God, you run from God. God alone is the source of grace in this universe. God is the only one who loves with an everlasting love, who pursues, who says, I'm not committed for what you do for me. I'm committed to you. I care. I love. I want you. God is the only one who comes after us with that kind of grace. Everything else comes with a demand. Like Bridget Jones. Reformation. Resolve. Resolutions. Resolved. Must lose a few pounds. Resolved. Got to make my life work together. Resolved. Got to fix me. See, you know, when we cling to idols, we forfeit grace. We forfeit the one thing that we are made to be about. God has made you, has designed you as a worship machine. Your life is only going to work when He is in the center of that. When your life is about Him. When your life is not about other things in addition to Him. And as, as much as you, call it other th- as you call it pursuing, I would say you're, you are running after and you're avoiding Him. You're creating a life apart from Him. You know, this story also shows us what to do with our idols. Jonah has to come to a place where he says, I am not competent to run my life anymore. Thought I was competent. Thought I had that job. I can't do it. I am not competent to run my life anymore. And I don't need reformation in this moment. I don't need some good resolutions and some good willpower to make this next phase work. I need transformation. This is why he says the one thing in this passage that's the highlight of this whole book Salvation is from the Lord. That's not just a like, throwaway statement. That is the summary verse of the Bible. I could say, you know, you want one summary verse of what the Bible's about? Is that what we have, our relationship with God, is not achieved, it's received. The life that you are looking for in all kinds of other things, the things that you are pursuing in your life to give you meaning and success and hope and joy only come from Jesus Christ. Only come from Him. And that's why there is great clarity in this prayer. Jonah's like, I get it. I get it. I'm in the middle of a belly of a fish. My idols are worthless. Nobody, when you hit your life hits bottom, cries out to, oh, oh, professional success, can come save me now. You know, oh, great popularity with friends, come fix me. We cry out to God. This is not a perfect illustration, but you'll get the point. Um, a couple years ago, around Christmas time, uh, we loaded up the minivan, Susan and the kids, put the car top carrier on, filled it full of Christmas presents for the family, and Susan set out for Tennessee with our, with our kids. And I stayed back. I, was, uh, I can't remember preaching here and doing some other stuff for the church. And I was going to fly down and meet them. Well, they, they travel down, and it's a Saturday night, and they're driving down the interstate, down I-81, and they get to southern Virginia, and they hit a, a thing of black ice on the interstate. And the van, she loses control, the van spins out, hits a guardrail, and comes to a stop. And, you know, everybody's okay. We did have a, a, a catch-up scare that we, one of our kids thought was blood. <laughs> but um, everybody's okay. And Susan calls me and she's like, you know, freaking out, of course, but she's all right. And, you know, the car is drivable. 
Next day, we'd find out it was totaled, but it was drivable. So she drives to the next exit, pulls off, goes to a hotel that night, and everybody's all right. A couple hours later, I get a phone call, and it's a guy on the phone who says, you know, hey, I found your presents. I was like, what? You know, he was driving home from Home Depot that night, and he's driving down the interstate, and he sees something lying in the median of the road, and it's our car talk carrier. He picks it up, he puts it in the back of his truck, he drives back to his house, he unwraps presents. He and his wife just sit there and unwrap gifts until they find one with a shipping label on it. And they do a you know, search, they find my phone number, they call me in the middle of the night and said, hey, we got your presents, we got your gifts. And you know, we're able to connect and he takes them to Susan at the, at the hotel. I mean, crazy story, right? But it's such a picture, honestly, of what God does with us. See, some of you are at a place where you're like, my life is wrecked. You know, I have hit the guardrails. You know, I am in my distress calling out to God. That's where we all are. Your life crashes and you call out to God. And you're like, God, come fix me. And look at what God does. God shows up at your door and he says, hey, you left some packages And they got your name on them. I think they're yours. He comes and he brings your idols back and says, Do you recognize these? This is what you were living for before. And see, in your life, in my life today, some of you are like, My life is crashing and no one else knows it. You look like Jonah. On the outside, you're a good person. But underneath, there are idols. There are things that you are pursuing and you're living for and that you're giving your life to. And you just want to ask God, hey, God, would you come in and fix this? And God says, no, I want to show you what I found. I want to show you, I think these belong to you. What are you going to do with them? Some of you are like, I know my life is falling apart. I know I have hit the guardrail. There is nowhere else for me to go. My life is in the pit, as we read here. You know, and God comes to you and says, look, I want, I'm going to rescue you because I love you. But you have to identify these packages. These things that you've been living for, apart me, can you say, those are mine and they are worthless? Those are mine. Those belong to me and they are worthless. You know, I have conversations with people all the time that are at this point, the low point. They're like, my life, it's gone from worse to worse to unbelievably worse. And in that moment, you know, God comes in His mercy because this is how He loves. And He says, you know, I want to bring freedom into your life. Can you say, as Jonah says here, when my life was ebbing, ebbing away, those who cling to worthless idols have forfeited grace that could be theirs, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Salvation comes from the Lord. See, what about you? I want to give you a chance to surrender this morning. I want to take a little time out and say, I want to give you an opportunity. An opportunity to say, I'm doing a lousy job of running my life. The things that I have run after and pursued are now killing me. What started out as fun has become an addiction. The things that I have given myself to and run after... They are empty, and they are choking me to death. 
you know, I thought I was able to handle this. You know, for some of you, God has just begun to connect some dots in your life where you're like, this is not working. This life, the way I'm doing this, is not working. And I want to give you a chance this morning to surrender. To say, yeah, those are my packages. Those are the things I've been running after. Those are the ways I've been running from you. And I need you to come in and do a deeper work of grace in my life. I need you to come in and fix me. I need, salvation can only come from you. Look, we are all Jonah. Every person here. Don't be freaked out by this invitation. But in a moment, as we come and take communion, I'm going to invite you to come in repentance. To where you are, before we take these elements, to bow down on your knees, to say, God, you know, in a very public way, I need you. I'm tired of living for other things besides you. I'm tired of giving my life to other things besides you. And I'm going to invite you where you are to kneel. Some of you have been running so hard to kneel and say, God, come fix me. I repent. Now, I have two encouragements before, before we actually do this. One encouragement is this. God is a God of forgiveness and a God of grace. How do I know this? How do I know that you're never going to run out of this with God? It's because Jonah in this prayer, he keeps saying something very significant. He keeps saying, when I was sinking down, I looked to the temple. Now, that's a strange comment to make. Unless you understand what happened at the temple. He doesn't say, hey, I remembered the temple, all the good times we had at the temple. He doesn't say, I'm, 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 I'm kind of... Uh, nostalgic for the temple. He looks to the temple because the temple was the place of sacrifice. The temple was the place where, in the Old Testament, sheep and goats were killed for the sins of people. And he looks there and says, that is the currency. Sacrifice is the currency of God's love and forgiveness. And we know what Jonah couldn't know, that God would send his only son, who would be identified at the beginning of his public career as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And on the last night of Christ's life, he goes, he's, he's taken, and he is sacrificed on Passover night, where the blood was shed for the sins of people. And so, therefore, we can look to God. Just as Jonah looked to the temple, we look to our strong Savior, Jesus, and we say, God's grace is infinite. God's grace is greater than my sin. The farther I run, the farther and faster God runs after me. You're not going to outrun Him. The second is this. The second encouragement. I told you I had an encouragement and an encouragement. The second encouragement goes like this. Some of you are cynical about the story. See, you've watched the VeggieTales version. Or you've read the rest of this passage. You've been around church long enough to say, Wait, Bradford, time out here. Because Jonah, I know what happens... Jonah goes from this story to where he goes and preaches. There's a great revival. And then the last chapter of the book, Jonah is angry, sitting with his arms folded under a tree. And he's like, I knew this would happen. I knew you were going to save people. I wish I were dead. No thanks for you, God. And the Jonah of chapter 4 looks like the Jonah of chapter 1. And so you could be like, Bradford, seriously, I know what happens in this story. This is not sincere. This isn't... Something 
nothing changed in Jonah's life. And I would say, you know what? You got the point. You get the point. Because this is just like me. And this is just like you. Some of you have had weeks where you're like, you come in here and you're like, I'm full of joy. I connect with God's word. I feel really good about stuff. And you'll leave here today and you'll turn around and fall into the same sin patterns you did the moment you got up this morning. And you'll be like, the Jeff Bradford of chapter 4 looks like the Jeff Bradford of chapter 1. Or insert your name. You know, you're like, I, I feel like I'm not getting something here. I keep having to repent of the same things. I keep having to go through the same struggles over and over again. And I would say, you got it. You know, the disciples in the New Testament, one of the things I love about the disciples is that they continually don't get it. You see them like, hey God, can we call down fire from heaven this week? Jesus is like, what are you talking about? No. You know, Jesus, who can be the greatest in your kingdom? Jesus is like, what are you talking about? You know, one guy pulls out a sword and cuts off this guy's ear. Jesus is like, what are you guys doing? And it's such an encouragement to me. You know, uh, one of my friends who's a pastor in Chicago always says, what, do, what if we change the name of our church to Hypocrisy Church? And that's what most people think Christians are anyway, is that we're hypocrites. We say, we believe in this, and yet our lives don't reflect it. The only difference between hypocrisy and true Christianity is that Christians repent over and over again. Christians say, you know what? You're right. My convictions don't match my lifestyle. That's called living the life of faith and trying to follow Jesus and saying, every day I need your grace. Every day I have stuff to repent for. Every day I need you to work in my life. It's a life of living in dependence upon Christ. And it's a wonderful, freeing thing when you realize that that's the grace that God's called you to. 2 Timothy 2 says this, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He will not disown His own. I want to invite you, so we come to this point in the service, to close your eyes. To close your eyes. And to pray with me. And to pray silently where you are, that God would show you your heart. I told you last Sunday I would give you a chance to come and submit yourself to Jesus. And my call to you is to come in repentance. And I would ask you, fellow Jonas that we are, to kneel where you are. If God is convicting you of your sin, of your running, of the ways you're running to other things beside him. To kneel with me as a fellow sinner. And ask God to continue to draw you to himself that you would say this morning, salvation is from him. Please take a few moments of silent confession. I invite you to worship God as you will. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the mercy that is not just words, but is seen in the blood of Jesus for us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to let go of living for worthless idols, to stop clinging to things that don't give life or joy or freedom or peace. Jesus, we confess that you are our hope. You, salvation only comes from you. We pray, Father, as we submit ourselves to you this morning, as we surrender ourselves to you this morning, that we would rejoice that our sins are forgiven because of a blood, the blood of Jesus poured for us. We pray for these things in Jesus' name.